Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. If I don't talk about what the real impact of this is on real patients, real people, every day, the common impact of this, then who is going to? Today, Dr. Chloe Zira, the Vice President of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, returns to the podcast to discuss the impact of the first year after the overturning of Roe v. Wade for this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior Vice President and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and rejoining me on the podcast today is Dr. Chloe Zira. Dr. Zira is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Vice President of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Um, Dr. Zira, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Great. Well, it's been a little over a year since Dobbs' decision overturned Roe v. Wade at last we spoke. And I'd like to discuss with you what you've seen in the past year. Is that okay? Absolutely. So first, how has the past year impacted um, your patients? So I'll be honest, being in Massachusetts, I've been incredibly fortunate because most of my patients have not been directly impacted by this. I will say that we have seen some, although not a huge influx from other states. Um, But most of our patients, if anything, we've expanded access in Massachusetts because of a a legislature which sort of saw the need for both patients and providers to be protected. So we've become a place where people know that they can have access to safe and legal abortion. Okay, great. And so that you answered my second question about the practice. So um, I wanted to know, because I've read the the Boston Globe article a couple of weeks ago, um, what advice have you given your patients who are pregnant who might consider traveling to to the very restricted states outside of Massachusetts? That's a great question. You know, I think for people who are in particularly uh, dangerous pregnancy situations, we've never really recommended they travel. (laughs) But um, I think being more mindful about where they're traveling to, it has come up in conversation for patients. Um, I think the biggest issue for us in New England is, are there any other states where our patients might live where they might come to us for care. And and New Hampshire is the only one nearby where we think about might they have restricted access to abortion. So far, hasn't been a huge issue, but um, definitely we have, we do think about it now, which isn't something we had to do a year ago. Right. And so you did mention that there are some patients migrating. Have you or do you know of any uh, healthcare providers who have migrated? That's a great question. I do know of some, actually. I know of I, I know of some providers who were living in states where um, bans were enacted, who felt like they just couldn't give the kind of care that they felt like was ethical anymore, um, or they felt like they weren't able to give their children the safety they wanted to anymore. And so um, I am aware of a few providers who have who have relocated. Yeah. And that leads me to my next question, because you're involved in a training program. And what will happen to OB-GYN training programs or, or even neonatal or pediatric training programs in the states where there are these severe restrictions on reproductive rights? I think we're just starting to to see it, that's the tip of the iceberg. This year, I think the number was something between six and seven percent decrease in the number of medical students who applied for OBGYN overall. So I think the first thing is, are people going to want to go into a field where their choices of where to live are going to be restricted? 
if if they want to practice the full spectrum of, of care that that field provides. So that's one question. Um, and then the second question is, where do people choose to train? And, and would people rather go unmatched than train in a restrictive state? And, and certainly there have been media reports of students who just, you know, and I've talked to students who absolutely will not um, rank up a program that's in a restrictive state. So I think the real problem is if 45% of, of the trainees in OBGYN across the country are in a state where abortion is either heavily restricted or outright banned, what do we do 10 years from now when half the OBGYNs that are in practice don't know how to provide safe abortion care or even maybe manage a miscarriage safely, particularly in the second trimester? So I think we're looking at a crisis in our field, to be honest. Yeah, I, I extrapolate that to, to my background in emergency medicine or, or, or when I was explaining it to family members, I'm sort of like, you know, this is like you're going to a, a cardiac surgeon who can work on your valve and your aorta, but they can't do a heart transplant. They're like the one of the major procedures that they need to know how to do has been restricted and they didn't do it during their residency right? or their fellowship. Uh, frightening, um, frankly. Um and then the other question that um, one of my colleagues came up with is, is that not just OB-GYN specialists, but I mean, you know, what did some of these laws entail for, you know, I know that we're supposed to all do pregnancy tests on, you know, female patients who are of reproductive age, but sometimes things happen and, and some women get exposed to either therapies that they're chronically on and then they become pregnant or you need to do a life saving or a life, you know, a, a health pre preserving uh, procedure like interventional radiology or something. Um, do you have thoughts on that and how these restrictions might impact that? I think um, there are several fields that have started to realize this is going to impact them in some way. Um, I know I've been in, in part of panels talking to cardiologists about what does this mean for how you advise your patients with, for example, valvular heart disease or a history of cardiomyopathy. What does it mean for your patients with congenital heart disease? I think every field is going to have to start thinking about that. What does it mean for your patients with cancer? What does it mean? You know, I think the fear is what I would never want is for somebody to have limited access to life-saving medical care for whatever condition they have because they were pregnant. And we know that that does still happen from time to time, even in places where abortion is legal. And if abortion is no longer legal in your state, what are what are the implications of giving, you know, a dose of radiation to somebody or, you know, like inadvertently administering chemotherapy? Like, you know, I think I think we, we don't know yet. We just don't know. Right. Because I see this as, as two problems. I mean, the first problem is, is that, OK, you know, we've saved the the patient's life, but you know, their fetus is, you know, either severely, you know, damaged or there's been a lot of harm there and they want to make the choice to, to discontinue the pregnancy. Okay. You know, in, in a place where that's legal, patients can do that. The other part I'm thinking about is, you know, is the oncologist who, if you go to the extreme, is the oncologist who admit it, are they liable? And I think it's so, so there have been, there's been a qualitative report published um, by a group called ANSWER, which is a group out of the University of California at San Francisco, but um, kind of preliminary data from um, providers telling their stories of practicing in states where abortion is restricted. And one of the most heartbreaking ones to me was, was someone telling the story of a patient coming in with a miscarriage 
and uh, uh, another provider, I think it was a nurse, if I'm remembering correctly, saying kind of refusing to even help the patient transfer off the stretcher because of the fear of if I'm involved in this patient's care, will I be involved in their abortion? And I think that that, you know, taking this is what happens when you take things to the extreme, right? It's, you know, at the end of the day, people get scared. And that is unfortunately part of the goal, particularly in a state like Texas, where there's an explicit bounty provision, you know, which is, is specifically targeting providers to participate in abortion care. So, I mean, and this is this is in a different topic that we're going to address with another guest um, having to do with trans health. But I'm assuming the same discussion has been going on about healthcare records being subpoenaed by district attorneys. It, I, I, I can't imagine it happening in Massachusetts, but I know in Tennessee, and I have this slated for some questions for another guest next week, um, the uh, Tulane, uh, not Tulane, um, I, I can't remember which institution in, in Tennessee submitted records on trans healthcare. Um, can you foresee that, or has that been discussed about the same thing about providing abortion services in, in restrictive states? Yeah, actually, states? we were lucky in Massachusetts in that um, our legislature was open to what they call now um, shield provisions for providers so that we we actually are not allowed to have records subpoenaed relating to this care. And they included gender-affirming care in that, um, that it wasn't just abortion care. I think they recognized that that these are going to be treated very similarly. Um, abortion care and care for, for folks um, needing gender affirmation. And so... Um, I think that there are other states that are modeling legislation similarly, trying to protect providers. But, you know, again, I think what we're seeing are two extremes legislatively. States are falling into either that we're going to try really hard to be protective um, and limit that, or we're going to go absolutely the opposite way and mandate, you know, what many of us would consider to be HIPAA violations. So I think there's a lot still there's the legal aspects of subpoenas and everything but then there's also just the you know we'll use epic as an example ehr incompatible or ehr compatibility all the provisions that that said we should be able to look at, e at at healthcare records from another institution so we don't unnecessarily duplicate services etc the problem now is wait, do we actually want some a provider in Texas to be able to see that this patient got an abortion this week in Massachusetts? And, um, you know, the short answer is no, actually. And, and so what do we do to make sure that people get the healthcare they need and are able to have access to the medical records they need when they need them, but also are protected and aren't having their, their information um, shared against their will? It's a tough problem. It is. And it goes exactly against, I mean, having worked in the emergency department, I have patients present all the time, you know, have had patients present where I need information because, you know, we all know that not everyone carries all their healthcare information in their head or has, you know, adequate recall or may not be in a state to recall it, you know, a physical state, a mental state. And, you know, at the core of it, even when I was teaching medical students, residents, communication, I'm like, you need to communicate with other specialists or other hospitals who have seen this patient. This runs so counter to that, that it's, it, it's almost a cognitive dissidence as a professional. You're sort of like, wow, we're being stopped. We're being stopped. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just we're being stopped from pro providing medical care. Like we can't do our jobs. Yeah. yeah. And, and I had one other question because, you know, one of the things in the emergency department we're always worried about is ectopic pregnancy. 
um, you know, somebody has a, you know, positive test and, but they're in some pain and, you know, we're like, this is not right. I mean, can we foresee in, in any of these sort of really restrictive states preventing, um, you know, a surgery on an ectopic pregnancy? I mean, I think that that, that has happened. That's been, again, that report that allowed people to tell their story, there was an, you could anonymously submit your story. And so people did. And there were stories of people saying, well, the ectopic isn't hemorrhaging yet. Is that, you know, if, if she's not anemic yet, does that count as a medical emergency? How tachycardic does she have to be? Like, do we need hypotension before it's medical? You know, what is the definition of a medical emergency? And we know that that's not something that legislation can define. So I think, you know, we're never going to be able to define a medical emergency legislatively in a way that that is wholly uh, inclusive of all of the potential scenarios that we face. I think we all know something new happens every so often that we learn from that we've never imagined happening before. So how could you possibly write it in the legislation, right? Like it's a total lack of humility to think you could. So that's the tough part. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the other thing, you know, having worked in the emergency department, you pick up the phone, you call the expert and they're like, what are you seeing? Because you can give the best history and physical over the telephone, but you as a clinician with your eyes on the patient, your hands on the patient, you know, you definitely can tell what's going on. So I totally agree with that. Switching gears a little bit to some of a good piece of news. I read recently that the FDA approved an over-the-counter birth control pill. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and what do you see coming it's next? It's fantastic. We're thrilled. I mean, I think over-the-counter FDA approval of this particular formulation is great. ACOG um, and the American College of OBGYN has been advocating for a long time for unrestricted access to birth control. Um, and so we're really excited. This is a step in the right direction, um, toward sort of deregulating contraception for people. It's great. Yep. And, and I think that the, the follow-up question is, is that, you know, and I, this is clearly a legal question that's sort of, I, I think I might remember from some of my, uh, you know, uh, classes in college about law or the constitution, but, um, you know, the whole thing about mailing things to people, I know that some people have been talking about, um, federal mail can't be tampered with by states and, and maybe giving, you know, folks the combinations of the morning after pill and so forth. What's going on with that, if you have any knowledge about that What I know is that the discussion involves something about the Comstock law. <laughs> that's where, about where, okay. that's about where my, and it's ha- sort of regulation of interstate commerce versus right. federal mail protections. And that's basically the extent of my knowledge. I won't claim to be a legal scholar here, but what I will say is I think we're all interested in inve- investigating ways that patients can have less restrictive access to the healthcare that they need um, and in ways that are safe and legal. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, to look at the other G20 countries, I mean, not even just G20 countries, but other, you know, countries around the world where all of this is, you know, available and or, you know, most, I mean, that's the whole thing about over-the-counter birth control. I was reading the article and it's like, there are a lot of countries that have this. It's like, we're waited, we've waited this long. What's going on? Any final thoughts as we're into year two and certainly would be very glad to have you back in another year or so to, to see what's going on. Any final thoughts to close out our con- discussion today? For anybody listening who's a physician and a specialty that doesn't think this will touch them, um, that that really this is going to touch all of us. This is, I think we're only starting to see the beginning of how it's going to change our fields 
as a whole. It's not just going to affect OBGYNs or family medicine docs or pediatricians or people that provide contraceptive care. It's going to impact everyone um, because it really is about who is able to, to decide what happens between a provider and a patient. And so no time like the present to get involved in physician advocacy. We need everyone. Well, this has been great as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Chloe Zira, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, Gabrielle Mostello for selecting and editing her stories, and to Raul Garcia for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.